Welcome back to another fun edition of the Florida Keys Weekly Podcast. I'm Brett Myers. Uh, I want to before we get started with our repeat guest today, I have one of my favorite people back with us. I want to thank our friends out in Radio Land, WKWF FM 103.3. And AM 1600, that's the early risers at 7 AM Saturday and Sunday. And of course, Sunday mornings over at FM WKEY 93.7 FM. Thank you guys for tuning in on radio. For the rest of you in podcast land, you can catch this show, of course, and all of our other guests and podcasts anywhere. You can find a podcast, Amazon, Spotify, Apple, and keysweekly.com. That's www.keysweekly.com. And you can catch a previous episode with none other than author, professor, world changer, Alex Counts. We're going to go into Alex's bio. You've been on with us before. So Alex, you are now one of our few repeat podcasters, and I'm happy about that. It's great to have you back on the show. Um, I'm honored, and it's good to be here. Absolutely. Now, we're going to talk about what could sound like a complicated subject. We touched on it last time you were here, Alex, um, and that is microfinance and how that came about and how that can possibly, or I know in your, in your world, it's not possibly, it is changing the world and it's done, it's done so through grassroots, it's done so through uh, disadvantaged areas and those who don't have access to the means or loans that some others do that maybe some of us take for granted each day of our lives. And you have taken that head on. We're going to talk more about that. Uh, before we do, Alex is uh, author of many books. We'll talk about some of those, and like we did last time, before we do that, you're a Cornell uh, University graduate, and your commitment to poverty eradication deepened uh, when you were there and you visited Bangladesh, where you met your mentor there and Nobel Peace Prize uh, recipient, is that right, Alex, recipient, mm-hmm. yes. and uh, Professor Yunus. Uh, which is also affiliated with the uh, Grameen Foundation that you founded. Uh, You're a founded board member, and you continue to support that. And we'll talk more about that as well. In addition to this book, we have, or this book is Small Loans, Big Dreams. We'll talk about that today. And tell me about some other books, because it's a long, I I don't want to skip anything. how, How many books have you read now, Alex? Basically three. So Small Loans, Big Dreams, about microfinance and kind of partnering with the founder of that, iconic founder of that movement. I wrote a kind of a memoir-esque book called Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind, where Mm -hmm. I talked about what I learned about uh, nonprofit and mission-driven leadership, uh, tell the stories of all the mistakes I made and what I learned from them and how they might benefit other people trying to change the world in their way. And then a small book that was we focused on last time, which was just a, a very, almost like an annotated checklist of my nonprofit and life hacks uh, achieved over the last, that I learned over the last, you know, 50 years. That's a great book. Uh, we purchased multiple copies after you handed me one and Key West, which is synonymous with nonprofits and boards and everyone's participating, which is a great thing. And I know I handed that book off to several, about a dozen of my friends who, who are involved in nonprofits and they all loved it. And so uh, if they're listening, I know they will say thank you for that. And, uh, and I will be ordering some more. Now, you're here today, Alex Counts, Florida Keys Weekly Show and Podcast. We're talking about your book, Small Loans, Big Dreams. 
uh, talking about the Grameen Bank and the microfinance revolution in Bangladesh, America. We talked about this last time a little bit. Um, there's a lot of elements in this book uh, that have firsthand stories, particularly, I want to ask you about that, particularly not just uh, in other countries where I feel like the microfinance movement and you have been focused, particularly your time in Bangladesh, but this comes into the United States and the Chicago area and focuses on women a lot too, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, there's no way to encapsulate this book in a few sentences. There's a lot of moving parts. I think, first of all, it's important for people to understand, you know, if you're a doofus like me, you're a college professor, uh, Alex, and I'm one of these guys who got through college by the skin of his teeth. I, I kind of got an idea of what micro and macroeconomics were as I took them. But in all seriousness, we're talking about microfinance as opposed to maybe macrofinance. It probably goes hand in hand if, as these things work out and it starts to change communities by the individual into the community. But for those who are like, okay, we've got this guy on the show. He's back. I hear this big word, microfinance. I've been to a bank before. I know I've got to show my tax returns and I, I know a certain amount that I want and I've got to cool acronyms, debt to income. And if I want to get a loan, I got to show some collateral and I got to show some credit. All these things come into play. Talk about the difference on why you got involved with this. What is microfinance and how does it apply to actual people? Well, in basically when we think about trying to address an issue like poverty, whether it's in Chicago or Miami or in Bangladesh, typically, and then when credit comes into an equation, the, the idea is let's lend money to the job creators, the entrepreneurs, the classic, mostly male uh, and people who are already kind of known to have some business savvy, business success, let them create more jobs for people and the money kind of trickles down. And what Muhammad Yunus said is that may be okay, but there's a more direct path, which is why don't we lend money directly to people that are in poverty uh, and let them create their own jobs. Let them take maybe a tiny business that they're running and do it with another $100 of capital, $200 of capital, and it turned out people was, you know, he was laughed out of economic seminars and, uh, and because people said these people can't write, they don't, they don't have any education, uh, how are they going to run a business? It turns out that they do it very well. Uh, and giving them just that first little uh, amount of capital to start or expand a business tends to be a more direct route to helping them than to wait for it to trickle down. Uh, and, and that's part of the revolution that he spurred. And, and it is come as close to Key West as Miami, where they have a branch of Grameen America operating today. There's so many avenues I want to take, and I don't want to politicize this because I don't think you do that. And I kind of waited for that in the book. You talk about battling poverty a lot and changing the world, but I really feel like it does a great job. And maybe because it is you know, bipolitical or apolitical. It is not, it's not necessarily taking one avenue of capitalism or socialism. It's talking about empowering people, giving them the needs. There's some interesting things. I'm a former lender in my life before Mm -hmm. publishing. And so I noticed some interesting things too, of not just handing people money, but empowering them with other elements of education and how to, and how to reinvest and how to save basic things that I think apply to a lot of Americans too, whether they have the more, more opportunities to go and get a loan or not. But our last show, we went into great detail 
about your mentor, about Bangladesh, and we could do a whole show on that again. So I, I'm not going to dive as deep into that. I don't want you to think I'm skimming over that. But in this book, with uh, Alex Counts, Small Loans, Big Dreams, it takes it from Bangladesh and some of the, your earlier experiences into Chicago. Um, the book, Small Loans, Big Dreams, it was published a while back. You updated it. Can you tell me a little bit about why you updated it and, and what's different now than maybe, you know, 10 years ago? Or what? And when did you first publish it? The original edition came out in 1996. 96, okay. It was, I was just just about to turn 30, just about to start the Grameen Foundation. and uh, You're 35 now. Uh, something like that. <laughs> and... Um, but, you know, Muhammad Yunus, who in certain ways is a very conservative person, right? He's, I mean, uh, he's seen as a hero of the progressive movement, but he's trying to use capitalism as a way to address the poverty in his country and poverty everywhere uh, and, uh, and promoting self-help, not being reliant on others, uh, self-reliance, really. And, you know, when, when this was, when the original edition came out and then we rushed a new, a second edition after the Nobel Peace Prize went to Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank. But in the 14 years since, two very important things have happened. People finally figured out how to do this well in the United States. Uh, and ha- I had experimented with it in a few cities. We weren't very successful. Some people just said it wouldn't work in the United States. A $1,500 loan as a transformative process to get someone creating their own job rather than waiting for a job, a, you know, win, minimum wage job that, you know, isn't may even keep them in poverty. But, um, but we, people were trying for years, but finally actually a, a, a bunch of Bangladeshis were came over here and started knocking on doors in Queens in New York city <laughs> and got a lot of them slammed in their face, but they finally figured out how to make loans and actually do it in a way that they, it's almost profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so since the second edition came out, Grameen America came on this, and they're about to lend their three billionth dollar in the United States in amounts averaging two thousand dollars, ninety nine percent repayment. I mean the results in Bangladesh, but uh, you know taken here, and so that that success we finally broke through with microfinance in the U.S. So that story had to be told, and Muhammad Yunus, um, who um, in the spirit of no good deed goes unpunished, uh, he was run out of his job running Grameen Bank um, by a kind of a, a, a prime minister who was jealous of his worldwide acclaim. But the good news, uh, it wasn't good that he was forced to resign from that role, but uh, the good news is that his protégés, people he he trained, uh, have been running it successfully ever since. Can't, so let me ask you a question. For someone listening that's not, you know, hopefully they pick your book up. And it's a great read. I, I you're a guest. I would toot your horn. Say it's a great book. It's a really good book. And, you, and obviously, your, I mean, your background and your education. You're a great writer. You, it's not every professor with a prestigious Ivy League degree can still, you know, it still takes a knack for writing. You, you write, you write about something that can be complicated, can seem like a very, and it is a very in-depth subject. But you do it in a way that you personalize it in this book, which I found great, especially with some of the stories of individual women in Chicago. But for people who see the surface of this, Alex, and I know you probably hear this all the time when you talk about people being threatened by this, probably traditional banks in some ways, mm-hmm. or maybe some people who say, all right, you go knock on doors in Queens um, around New York and people slam it, but you find people, to, you, know, you know, maybe lower income people to take these loans. How is this different from a loan shark? Because there's going to be higher interest. There's bigger risks. There's less collateral or no collateral in some cases, I'm sure, the way this uh, we're talking about microfinance. But how does this empower people? And how do you separate that? Or how do they see it differently from someone saying, well, 
there's going to be haters, right? There's going to be people who question you. So let, let's talk about them real quick. They come and say, oh, well, you're really in a predatorial way lending. You're, you're, you're giving out to people who can't repay it, and there's high interest rates. How do you separate that uh, from, from a loan shark mentality? Well, first of all, loan sharks exist in all these societies, whether it's in rural Bangladesh or inner city Chicago. Uh, they're out there. What, what you're trying to do in microfinance is basically be as convenient to the poor person as a loan shark without the exploitation. Mm -hmm. So the interest rates, while they're not zero, um, they are affordable. Uh, they're way below what people are used to paying. In, in Bangladesh, um, you know, the interest rates uh, vary between grooming loans from between 0% for education loans to 20% mm -hmm. in an economy where inflation is more than 10%. Uh, so it's, it's really a pretty reasonable amount. In the U.S., it's 15%. Uh, so again, it's enough so that you can lend and still make money. But loan sharks will charge two times, three times, four times that. The other thing about uh, Grameen is that rather than using force and intimidation and threats of violence sometimes to get money repaid, uh, in the Grameen system, you actually have a group of other women borrowers that are set up to help you succeed and bail you out if you get into difficulty. And so it's really a supportive system, not a system based on intimidation. Yeah. And I was kind of leading you that way because I, I know that. I just know that if I do this and don't ask that question, mm -hmm. someone's going to bring it up and say, well, but there is a difference. And it's not just that, but for lack of a better everyday term, loan covenants, when you lend someone money, whether it's 10 million or 10,000, um, is there, is there a designated purpose? Because you talk about empowering people and women and disadvantaged people and giving them a chance instead of a trickle down for them to trickle up, I guess is a good way of putting it. So are there covenants that come with that money? I know in Bangladesh, there's a lot about agriculture you talked about last time and in the book. And in Chicago, uh, let's just say you go, you find a, a single mom, because there's, there's talk about that. There's a woman's name here I, I enjoyed. Uh, is it... Uh, Quinesta? Quinesta, yeah, right. So that, right. I liked her story a lot. That one really stuck out to me for a mm -hmm. lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. Let's say you hand someone like her $10,000 and you say, Quinesta, you're a single mom. You're working 16 hours a day, you're trying to find daycare, childcare, put food on the table. And she's great. You gave, you gave me this money. How do you empower her to do, to learn with that? Any of us, if you, if you hand any of us a pile of money, no matter what size, how, what responsibilities come with that from the lender to say, this is how you manage it. This is how you'll get ahead. Well, so the typical loan today in Grameen America or in, or the one in uh, Chicago in the 90s uh, for a first-time borrower is $1,500, um, which is doesn't sound like a lot, but is it's not 10000 That can come of repeated loans. But what Queen Esther did, uh, remarkable woman, first of all, she didn't have a lot of education. So when she was in the workforce, she tended to get kind of the the bottom jobs without a lot of promotion uh, capability. She was a single mom. So childcare was always an issue. And if she didn't, she missed enough work because of childcare, she wouldn't, she'd get fired. But when she could create her own job, uh, there's a lot of flexibility in it. And when she had a, a supportive group of other women trying to help her, that was even a, a bigger thing. But what she did is her main business was she bought kind of Afrocentric books, uh, books that were celebrated African-American and African culture, and she sold them to the public schools in Chicago and to, frankly, anyone else who would buy them. So she bought them wholesale from a, a book wholesaler specializing in those books, and she made a good business out of that. Now, when that wasn't, you know, Black History Month, she, she would do really well. She would also sell things, knickknacks and sunglasses and so forth at the summer fairs, and she was very entrepreneurial. Um, but, um, she, 
Um, but for lack of $1,500, she could never get started with that. Oh. Uh, and now she didn't have collateral. She didn't have a credit history, but a program that was willing to lend her money just based on the fact that she could get four other women to vouch for her um, was enough to get her started. And off she was earning and showing her daughter that she could be her own boss, that she could chart her own future, was it, which was an extremely important part of it for Queen Esther. We talk about her, and I know when you say it, it is above the PC standards, but if someone hears you use the word poor, mm-hmm. oh, you called somebody poor. Who Who is poor? Well, who, who do these loans apply to? When we talk about income and someone rising up, you know, our, in our view of that in, in American society, it's probably going to be totally different than a second or third world country and what is really, you know, relatively speaking, what is poor. Who in America, for example, Alex, would, would you – what income levels would these types of loans target? You know, well, first of all, poor in, in some languages and cultures like Bangladesh doesn't have the negative connotations that it does in the United States. Right. Poor, when we use that word here, mostly people hear not only poor, like low income, but that you hear like they did it to themselves. They lack initiative. They lack a work ethic. So I tend to use, when I'm trying to be a little more politically correct, uh, I would use in, in English talking to the U.S., I would talk about a low income, which is just a statement of fact. Your income is below. And I don't know. I mean, I think in today's day and age, if you're a family of four and you're earning under $25,000, that probably classifies as low income or under the poverty line. Um, And so, you know, but but all those assumptions about people um, when when the in, in the right context, when they were access to a loan uh, and the, these uh, the grooming America that is, you know, again, doing fantastically uh, making loans in, in Miami and New York and all over across the country now um, for lack of a few hundred dollars, people are staying in a in a unemployment welfare or a dead end job. Uh, and then people who have ideas uh, unexplored potential uh, are unable to do that. And then a loan changes everything. As this moves, it hasn't moved, but as I read it, when you apply this into American society, I told you I'm trying not to be political, but I'm very curious about this. And it doesn't matter what political aisle you're on, you, I, or anyone listening. Uh, there is a big debate about advantages and certain advantages being inherent and and historically you know, do people in ghettos or lower income areas, uh, is that recycled lack of education, lack of opportunity? And I think it's hard to argue no matter where you stand, that exists, that's there. But it has become more of a political debate as CRT comes into play. And why is anyone having to apologize for this or do this or do that? Has that hindered some of this? So does that come into play? Do people look at this and say, you know what, you're embracing that that spirit and that philosophy, and I, or or do you run into that? I, I did I did wonder about that as I read the book, and especially, and I think that's probably changed since the '90s, and even in the last ten years, and more on and even people that don't understand it still want to argue about it, right? It's become a political talking point. Has that political talking point hindered any of what you're trying to do or people are trying to do? Not really. I mean, one of the things I've found in several of the countries I'm familiar with, India, Bangladesh, U.S., is that those kind of debates, critical race theory and all those hot button issues, they kind of go at the national level. But when Mm -hmm. you get down to the communities, mayors and governors, uh, those those issues kind of fall away and it really becomes much more, you know, are, are the roads paved? Are the schools decent? Uh, those types of things. And so I found that those types of controversial issues that keep, you know, educated and political national people all exercised, they, they, they weren't present at all in that when I was in, you know, a, a very 
poor and low-income neighborhood in Chicago. Uh, actually, where I found is that a lot of the African-American uh, people in and around this full circle fund, a, a Grameen kind of replica in Chicago, they were deeply conservative and felt that, uh, you know, that their race should be more focused on entrepreneurship, uh, on not relying on the government for aid, uh, wanted to become an example. Uh, one woman who I'm still in touch with uh, from from here, Omi Ali, the uh, woman who made the butter cookies and and all this. Uh, she's she she's in her 70s now, and she just when I caught her to get an update from her for this book uh, this spring, she was going off to Africa to set up. Um, uh, kind of an import export business for her daughters so mm-hmm. they could continue with their own entrepreneurship. And so, so really there's, there is, but I, f- I find those issues uh, about that we, these tired debates about poverty from the left and the right, they kind of melt away when the reality of, of needing to put food on the table um, <laughs> or for a mayor, you know, needing to get the roads paved uh, you know, that's, that's where, that's where real stuff happens. And I find ideology just almost doesn't have a, a role in trying to deal with these very basic issues. It's funny when your stomach's growling how politics is not quite as important. And, and um, you said something, though, interesting, and, and you gave me a flashback. I think it was earlier in the book, and it may have been early on, you pointed out there was a conversation with these ladies and maybe one of their mentors. It might have been her that you just referenced. And it does talk about how money, before money leaves certain uh, communities, whether it's the white community or just a certain kind of community, an upper class community, um, uh, it can be recycled three, four times in that community. And this person was saying, typically in the African American community, sometimes it doesn't recycle through there one time and it goes out. And it, and it was making a point to show how communities can come together and support one another. Um, and it really is a neat, you talk about going beyond ideologies, going beyond necessarily uh, socialism and capitalism. And there's a nice blend there, people supporting one another through hard work. And through, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things in, in that era in, um, uh, in Chicago, there's a lot of tension between the Korean community who had come in and started a lot of small businesses yeah. and the African-American community. And there was a lot of kind of blaming of them that they're taking our businesses and people and the women associated that I spent, you know, many, many weeks, uh, an entire summer in the 90s just to observe them doing their businesses and how they use these micro loans. They said, listen, if we just spend the money on in our within our community and don't rush off to spend it in other communities, we could, um, you know, we could be doing much better. So let's see, let's talk about what we can do for ourselves rather than blaming uh, other ethnic groups who are entrepreneurial. Why don't we try to imitate them rather than blame them? Again, very pragmatic approach. uh, And, uh, and that's, and again, always coming back to not, not what people can do for us or what people are doing to us, but what can we do for ourselves? And that, that kind of and Muhammad Yunus, um, you know, that's that was his message in Bangladesh and all the countries that he's uh, visited over the years and uh, and talked in is is again, you know, there are there are people who can be blamed for the problems that exist, but first of all, first and foremost, think about what you can do, and and with with given a loan, not a grant, uh, you can become an agent of your own change in your own family and in your community. Yeah, and I, and I don't know many people who have made it without a loan, even if they came from a family that had means, there's still some element that something was given to you to give you a chance to create more. Right. And so go ahead. even within your family, right. The one of the, one of the statistics you say, what is poverty? We say, what is your income? But a much better measure of poverty and really vulnerability, which is the, the key thing. Um, because, you know, some, some really rich people have no income in a year because, but they, but what they have is, is a, is a vast amount of assets mm-hmm. and African-Americans, uh, families, the wealth gap, uh, the 
the income gap is significant, but much more significant is the wealth gap. The average white family has 10 times more assets than the average black family in this country. So within that, there's there's more resources within the family for a, for a parent to set up a, a child in an education or in a business, and it's 90% less resources. Um, and so that's where credit becomes very important. Mm-hmm. Credit from outside your immediate family, because within the family, the resources are so tight. Yeah. And we're talking with Alex Counts, Small Loans, Big Dreams. We have about five minutes here. Alex, you talked about something important there. And in your book, you talk about this as well. And you talk about these uh, income gaps and so forth um, between certain societies. Uh, in this case, I had a thought there and you were going in different spots there. Uh, going back to some of these particular uh, women that you talk about in the book. Hey, you said something earlier. That's what it was. You said you followed back up with somebody. I was curious if you've stayed in contact with all of these women. Um, I know not every story is likely a success story just based on statistics, no matter who you are and where you're at. Um, but have you been able to stay in touch with a lot of these women? And why is it, I know you talk about this in there, but for those listening, why is it mostly women that we're, we're talking about? Sure. Well, what, what Muhammad Yunus found, let's go back to Bangladesh for a moment is yeah. he, his, what he accused the banking system of being is anti-poor, anti-women, anti-illiterate. And he wanted <laughs> to address all yeah. those. So initially he wanted to lend half of his loans to women because that's they were half of the population. Um, but what he found after doing that for a few years is that women, when they get loans and they generate some income, they give a much higher priority to using their growing income to benefit the children, their health and education um, and nutrition. So they were much more strategic investors, you could say, of ensuring the next generation doesn't grow up in poverty. Men might use it more to benefit themselves. And so from that point on, when he had that insight, he said, all my loans go to women from here on out. Yeah. Um, because just they were they were wiser. They were a little more cautious with what they put their money into. They weren't as risk-taking. And um, and also, again, when the profits came, they benefited the children, especially around the around the education. They would hire private tutors for their children uh, with their with their uh, increased income and very common things. So um, staying in touch with the women, it actually proved easier to stay in touch with the women in Bangladesh because they were kind of fixed. They didn't travel around and move around a lot in gotcha. in Chicago. It's been hard to, you know, the, these are these are women who are in, now in their 60s, 70s. They're not very into social media, except for the one, the kind of mother hen of the group, Omi Ali. And mm-hmm. I was able to kind of hear about the others through her, but she's been always able to, I could always track her down, the others uh, less so. Um, but, uh, and, you know, she's um, just eternally optimistic person. Um, she's now very pleased that some of her grandkids have graduated college, the first ever in her family. Uh, and, uh, but still for her entrepreneurship and trying to help open the doors of entrepreneurship and, and, and pride in black culture have been kind of through lines in her life. And she's touched so many people, but the fact that she could access these microloans, you know, coming from a Bangladesh experience, right? So we don't normally think of the U S learning lessons from Bangladesh, but in this case, that's what happened. And it touched her life. And now, you know, hundreds of thousands of women across the country through uh, grooming America. Yeah. Well, there's people listening, and we did your bio earlier in the most expedited form. It could we, we could do an entire show just about your bio, where you've been. We talked about that last time. So if you're listening, you want to learn, you hear more about Bangladesh, Bangladesh, and Alex and his time there, and sort sort of the origins. We touched on that a little more last time. Um, 
what I also didn't touch on was all your philanthropic, you know, you're involved with so many nonprofits, you give back. So for someone listening and they say, okay, you, you, you're talking about this topic. Here's Alex Counts. He's talking about his book, Small Loans, Big Dreams, Microfinance. Okay. I kind of know more about it now. It sounds interesting. We were able to, to find a way to get some type of loans, whether it be smaller to those who wouldn't have access to it. It empowers them, teaches them how to build themselves up and in turn starts to build up better communities. And, and they are able to, to uh, overcome the barriers that they probably are born into or faced. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Does it exist today still? How do people get involved? How would you, how would you encourage people to get involved if they have the means and time to do so? Well, f- first of all, you, the, the big, development since the last book, as I mentioned a bit earlier, is that they finally broke through and Grameen America, a a version of Grameen Bank, is now nationwide in the U.S. It's not in every city, but it is as close to here as Miami. Uh, They may be doing some remote work in Key West in the future. I I don't know, but look up Grameen America, check Mm -hmm. check them out, uh, and uh, see if... uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, they're nearing $3 billion lent in small amounts, 99% repayment. It's, it's quite amazing. That's but amazing. The, that's, but that's, I mean, you know, I, again, I tried to do it. I, when I was running Grameen Foundation, which was focused more internationally, I tried on the side to set up micro lending in New York City and in Dallas, Texas. It wasn't that successful. Um, but they, other people figured it out smarter than me on, on that. I, maybe I was too much, uh, too lenient on people in terms of their repayment, or I don't know, maybe I had some, uh, wrong ideas, but they figured it out. So check out Grameen America, uh, and, and help bring it to your community, but also think about next time you go to the store, think about the small business owner rather than going to target or, or, uh, Walmart or something, you know, try to, uh, you know, look look for the way to use your consumer dollars to support people that are trying to struggle to put food on the table, to educate their children. Uh, we tend to go to, you know, think about or, you know, when next time you want to buy something, do you go to Amazon or do you go to Key West Island Books, uh, which is which carries all of my books. Uh, and I hope you all will uh, check that out or other books they have there. Um, there are choices we have to make as consumers every day. Uh, and those can those can be helpful to people that have cha- chosen this entrepreneurial track with or without a micro loan, um, which can be a, again a, a way that people can get some real agency and flexibility into their into their life that a job might not provide. Yeah, oh, and so you can look that up there. Now, what if someone <clears throat> wants? to hear more of you and less of me and have you come speak and or share with them, whether it be a conference or just a round table, how do they get in touch with you? Well, my, my website, www.alexcounts.com uh, is, has all the information. I, I do come to the, uh, to a Key West quite often. I'm, I'll be here the entire month of March next year. Uh, and the Community Foundation of the Florida Keys mm-hmm. uh, often has me give little workshops when they do for their nonprofit partners. So I'm around here. I always love to talk about these issues and about about microloans, poverty. That's that's kind of where I've been. But there's so many issues. There's climate change. Uh, there's bullying in the schools. There's you name it, uh, problem with uh, opioids. And there there are solutions out there to these problems. And there are people that are bringing them and they need allies. They need people to help them. Uh, and, uh, and so just pick a problem that you see, find someone who's innovated a solution and just, you know, kind of do what I did in my twenties, which is I then dedicated uh, a lot of time and effort to helping someone who'd solved a problem in a small area and trying to make it big to help more people. And, and there's, there's, and it's not only does it help 
but I found it enormously satisfying. And, and again, these three books, uh, am I trying to just share my joy of being a change maker, being an ally of someone with a great, brilliant idea uh, and helping to change uh, people's lives one at a time? Well, I, I'm not doing the book justice. You always inspire and in your other books do that as well. Uh, I know your heart's into it. I know you are changing the world and, and inspiring people. Uh, for those who want to read the book, Small Loans, Big Dreams, or have interest, just so you know that we're not just uh, grabbing some guy who's walking by with a book one day. Uh, take, for example, the founder of eBay. Uh, <laughs> he said, "Counts uh, Alex here, counts, moves past facts and figures to show the human side and human cost of poverty by focusing on the experiences of individual Individual uh, women counts demonstrates the power of microfinance to bring opportunity where otherwise would not exist and ultimately transform people's lives. When the founder of eBay is saying that about your book, um, it's got to be a little. It's got. I mean, I know you're not a boastful. Um, you're very humble, but that's got to make you feel pretty good. I mean, there's some other intros here from senators in Wyoming and mm. uh, authors of books like Einstein, Steve Jobs, and the, the Code Breakers. Um, Walter Isaacson had a great comment about you. I could read all these comments. But it means something to people. It's real. Uh, what would you end with as, as we sign off here, just to, again, to inspire people to get involved, to give back and, and be a part of this movement and inspiration that, that you're a part of? Well, you know, it's you mentioned Piero Midiar, and I, I got to know him. He's about my age. We were we kind of came of age in the 80s. He went to Tufts. I went to Cornell. Um, and it's funny, you know, you, you, we make things up about other people. So I made, th- like, he's a billionaire, like a billionaire 15 times over when I when I knew him well. And yet he's just a normal guy mm-hmm. and he wants to help. And so, you know, I asked him if he would read my book and, and give a quote. He said, sure. Uh, and, you know, I might have thought, wow, who, how is he going to have time for that? Uh, you know, will be, he'd be in, he was used. So we make things up about the really rich. They're again, normal people with strengths and weaknesses and desire to help. And we make pe- things up about people at the lower end of the spectrum, the people who are poor, low income, low assets. And we think about we, we make up all sorts of things because we don't also have a lot of contact with people that are really rich and really poor, uh, many of us. And they they also have strengths and weaknesses. I, I'm very honest about some of the thing, mistakes that people made in the book with their loans. It's not a, everything is a success story. But they also have this deep desire to improve, especially when they're in a supportive framework or context. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I just try to tell these stories very realistically. I don't make myself a big part of the book, as you realize, right. especially the, the original edition, um, because I wanted the stories of these women um, to speak for themselves. And I was just a fly on the wall in their lives for two years and, and saw again the, what they could do for themselves and how a small loan uh, and in Bangladesh, an amount that you couldn't probably have a dinner for two um, for the amount of money that they got uh, and how that was transformative. And that made me hopeful uh, that something is as you know, poverty that people think will always be with us. Uh, maybe not. Uh, maybe this is a solvable problem. And Muhammad Yunus is on to, was on to something really important. And it's great to spend a couple decades working with him and, and observing at the very grassroots level in Chicago and in Bangladesh how it worked out. Absolutely. Well, I'm inspired listening to you. I, I hope you're right. I like to believe that you are. Alex Counts, Small Loans, Big Dreams. You can grab that book here if you're in Key West listening and local uh, down at Island Books, Key West Island Books, uh, Amazon, I'm sure. Every, everywhere you can find books, you can pick up Small Loans, Big Dreams. Alex, your second time on the show. Um, you've got so many inspiring stories and projects and things that you're into and doing. So next time, we're going to have you back in maybe another four, five, six months, and we'll, we'll pick back up and you can uh, find another way to inspire our listeners. I appreciate 
uh, you coming on again. It means a lot. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. See you guys next week. Everyone have a great uh, uh, holiday. If we get this out before the holiday, if not, we'll be looking at uh, the next holiday. So either way, we're in the holiday season. Have a great holiday. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you soon. Bye-bye.